and you're going to start to have immigration be part of this national conversation about rights and citizenship in the 90s. Welcome to The Past, The Promise, The Presidency, a production of Southern Methodist University's Center for Presidential History. I'm Jeffrey Engel. I'm Sharon Conrad. And I'm Lindsay Chervinsky. And together we are your historian hosts of this season one, Race and the American Legacy. This season, we are exploring the most pressing issue in all of American history, the country's troubled story of race relations, alongside the history of its most powerful office, that of the President of the United States. We figure if Americans in 2021 are bound and determined to talk about this issue and this office, let's make sure they get the history right. Today's episode is all about William Jefferson Clinton, the 42nd president of the United States, the first baby boomer to hold the office, and indeed the second youngest man ever elected president. Clinton's legacy is, well, ongoing. A work in progress even now nearly 30 years since he took office. Changing political winds, changes within the Democratic Party in particular, a changing sensibility over welfare and the war on crime, and let's face it, a different sensibility of what constituted sexual harassment than was the case during the early 1990s have all changed how we view not only this period, but this man. And we're going to get into all of it today as we rush forward from the 1990s across the bridge to the 21st century. So here's our primer on Bill Clinton, a complicated, fascinating conundrum of a man whose political enemies and allies alike nearly universally agree was the greatest natural politician of his generation, with perhaps the greatest unfulfilled promise. Unlike so many others we've discussed this season, Clinton was not born to wealth and privilege. Indeed, he wasn't even born in Clinton. His father, William Jefferson Blythe, tragically died in a car accident months before the future president was born in 1946. Raised initially by his raucous and fun-loving mother and his equally stern and disciplined grandmother, Bill took the name Clinton when his mother remarried in 1950. They moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, a resort town smack dab in the middle of a sea of conservative evangelical state, predominantly Southern Baptist, and the partying, gambling of the town versus the spiritual discipline of its region seemed to represent both sides of the young boy as he grew up. Clinton was always the smartest kid in the class and won at everything he touched, the kind of young lad city elders could point to as a proud representative for their community. He could also party when they weren't looking. In this way, he was just like his idol, John Kennedy, whose hand Clinton shook in July 1963. Educated at Georgetown University, then Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, Bill came back to the United States in 1970, where he met probably the most important person in his life, a young, equally brilliant, studious fellow student at Yale University Law School named Hillary Rodham. She had a bright future ahead of her indeed, which she decided to share with Bill, whose political ambitions led him to run for Congress from his home state of Arkansas in 1974. He lost that race, but only by a little in a contest against an incumbent expecting to win by a lot, thereby marking Clinton too as a rising political star. Indeed, One anecdote from the election, I think, tells a lot. The day after Election Day, so the day after he lost, Clinton was up bright and early to shake hands down on Main Street, thanking supporters and already working voters for the next time. The next time came only two years later, when Arkansas elected him attorney general at the age of 30. Two years later, he was their governor, one of the nation's youngest ever. He made some mistakes that first term, lost his first bid for re-election, and then worked even harder to win back the governor's mansion the next time around. This time he won election, then re-election, and then another election, setting himself up for the presidential bid in 1992. Now, 1992 was an unusual moment for Democrats. President George H.W. Bush was coming off the highest approval rating for any president ever recorded in the wake of the country's Cold War and Gulf War victories. And frankly, an 87% approval rating has a way of scaring off potential opponents. The Democratic Party was also in flux torn between those who held fast to the New Deal liberalism of the great society and those who thought voters had moved to the right in the era of Nixon and Reagan. Remember now, Republicans had won five of the previous six presidential elections since 1968. Clinton believed if you can't beat them, join them. He embraced centrist policies that fused liberalism and market solutions in what he liked to call a third way, rising to the head of the Democratic Leadership Council, a group of conservative Democrats 
eager to challenge Republicans on what had become their own turf. And it worked. Clinton won and pushed for national health care reform as a top agenda item. He also lost the fight. He also lost the House of Representatives in 1994 to Republicans for the first time in 40 years. And of course, Republicans already controlled the Senate. So what did Clinton do? If you can't beat them, join them. He pushed for welfare reform, broad anti-crime legislation, free trade, and ultimately balanced budget, all traditionally Republican issues. The political war of the 1990s between him and House Speaker Newt Gingrich got so bad, the government shut down for a while, leaving Gingrich with egg on his face and Clinton a message for voters in the 96 election. The era of big government is over. He won, but spent much of his second term mired in scandal. There's something else about Bill Clinton we haven't mentioned yet. People loved him and also really hated him. He represented the smug intellectual elite to some, a philanderer of loose morals to others, and in reality, the epitome of what baby boomers loved and loathed about themselves. He also made his wife a key member of his administration, indeed offering voters two for the price of one. And frankly, not every American was ready for such a powerful woman at the pinnacle of Washington politics. Investigations into financial dealings led in time to investigations into his personal life, including, of course, the revelation that he'd had a sexual relationship with a young White House intern. They called it an affair in 1998. Voters didn't much care. Clinton's approval ratings actually went up in the ensuing months, but Republicans made him only the second president formally impeached in American history. He won his Senate trial when votes came down along partisan lines. Uh, sound familiar? But in a broader sense, lost the contest that mattered most when voters rejected his vice president in favor of Texas Governor George W. Bush in a razor-thin 2000 election. It was time to, quote, restore dignity to the Oval Office, Bush said on the campaign trail, and voters knew just what he meant. So, Quite a lot to talk about with Clinton, a man who always seemed to find just the right way to both get himself into trouble and talk his way out of it. Our guests today help us unpack this man and his times. We got some great ones today. We began with Dr. Sarah Coleman, author of The Walls Within, The Politics of Immigration in Modern America, but more importantly, a much beloved alum of the CPH postdoc program. We then turned the conversation to Dr. Carly Goodman, one of the nation's leading experts on the confusing but critical U.S. visa lottery, and also a co-editor of the Washington Post influential Made by History series. Together, our guests illuminated two key themes. First, changes in immigration policy were changing the face of America. And second, new media in particular, right-wing media, responded with anxiety to that changing face. you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and telling us what you work on. My name is Sarah Coleman, and I'm a professor at Texas State University. I study 20th century U.S. political history with a focus on immigration policy in the second half of the 20th century. We've asked you here for the Clinton years. So what's going on with immigration and citizenship during this period that we should know about? What's happening is in the 1990s, you're starting to see a moment where some of the legacies of the changes of the 1960s are really coming to the forefront of national politics. So to backtrack a little bit, right, as part of the Great Society, coming right on the heels of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in 64 and 65, we see the a huge Immigration Act passed in 1965 under this idea of opening up and bringing American immigration policy in line with the civil rights movement and sort of the ideals of the nation. And Lyndon Johnson never anticipated this when he signed it into law, but the racial and demographic profile of American immigration is going to dramatically shift. By the 1990s, you're really starting to see its impact in communities. And so the conversation around immigration comes to the forefront and what it means to be American in a new way in the 1990s, sort of building off this change that happens in 1965. So that was something that people didn't talk about in 65 and anticipate in any way? You know, I think it's the moment in 1965, right? The United States is trying to win the hearts and minds of nations around the world. They want them to join in this fight against communism. We want to have this sort of 
notion of equality and we're democratic and this is a democracy, but by the way, don't come to the United, we won't let you in the United States. And they passed this law, but I don't think Lyndon Johnson at the time had any idea. He never anticipated the way in which this was going to dramatically shift the profile. At the time, most immigrants to the United States in 1965 are coming from Western Europe. By the end of the 20th century, over 50% are going to be coming from Latin America. So Sarah, I study LBJ's period too, and I'm eager to hear you talk a little bit about using immigration policy to win hearts and minds around the world. What do you think his views were on how it would impact people here in the States and the kind of domestic side of immigration? Did he have any thoughts at all on that? I think he thought it was part of this larger package of the civil rights movement. I just don't think anyone at the time, including authors or LBJ, really understood the massive shift that this is going to have on the demographic profile. And I think the average American in 1965 doesn't necessarily see this. But in the 1990s, the average American is starting to feel this demographic shift in their communities. And that's in part because you're going to see a huge rise in immigration over the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you're going to start to have immigration be part of this national conversation about rights and citizenship in the 90s. And part of that is why they're feeling it on a more local level, perhaps, is like certain states, border states like California or Texas have always had this conversation. But in 1986, under Reagan, you have a massive legalization program under IRCA. And one of the things that some very prominent sociologists have studied is one of the big changes that happened post-86 IRCA is that people, for the first time when they're legalized, have freedom to move. And so they're leaving places like California and Texas, where it's easier, right, to remain in your community and perhaps less detected. And they're starting to move to many, many more states around the country. And so immigration is starting to be felt more in what are not traditionally, quote unquote, border states. So let's transition into talking about President Clinton's role in this. What was his role in these conversations and how did it affect his presidency in ways he did not anticipate? So if you come into the Clinton presidency, he's not engaged on immigration at all, particularly as governor of Arkansas. This isn't on his radar. He's not planning on moving on immigration. This is not something that he's run a campaign on. This isn't welfare. This isn't foreign policy. This isn't healthcare, right? There's a lot of things that he's campaigned on. Immigration is not one of them. And what happens to Clinton is this issue starts bubbling up more and more prominently during the early years of his presidency. And particularly, it starts bubbling up in California. And California, you know, is of critical importance to Clinton. He wins it in 1992. Today, we think of California as like a solid democratic state. But in 1992, Clinton has won it for the first time since 1964, and he wins it with only a 46% plurality. He wins it because Ross Perot takes 20%. And so Clinton starts to see this issue bubbling in California, the Clinton White House in particular, and they start watching it. And they start getting more and more concerned about their ability to win California in 1996. And what happens in California is that immigration starts to become the driving conversation politically in the 1994 midterm. And so the Clinton administration starts watching and they see Proposition 187, which is a ballot initiative that would remove unauthorized immigrants access to healthcare and welfare programs and public education. And they see that ballot initiative get passed 59 to 41%. They see that in the state Senate race between Feinstein and Huffington, immigration is front and center. And they see in the gubernatorial race between Pete Wilson and Brown, immigration is front and center. They know that one of their potential challengers in 1996 to President Clinton is Wilson. And he runs on a strong anti-immigrant stance in 94. And they start watching what's happening in California. And they realize that while this may not have been something they wanted to talk about in 1992. This was not part of his campaign. This is something that they have to deal with and that they're being forced into engaging on. There's two things that are going on simultaneously during this period that I'm trying to unravel in my mind as you're telling the story. There is an increase in the immigrant population after 65 and then after 86, in particular from Latin America. Simultaneously, we're in a period of declining real purchasing power for blue-collar workers. Are those two things together driving the anti-immigrant sentiment, or is there something else going on? I think those are two really big factors, right? So 
many people view the unauthorized and Latino populations as both one and the same and as the most visible symptom of a changing economy, right? So they view it as a scapegoat for kind of the economic downturn they're facing. This is also a moment where you start to see rising terrorism concerns. Remember, this is 1993. So we've just had the bombing of the World Trade Center by people who are foreign born. You have a gunman who's foreign born, walks into the CIA and commits a shooting in 1993. Then you have this rising concern over entitlement spending that's also entering the public lexicon. So you have this sort of swarming together of these big forces at this moment. They're all playing into this rising concern with immigration. I wonder, you know, when we think about Bill Clinton, we think about him being this centrist, this new Democrat who saw himself able to negotiate and and appeal to people in the middle. How does that affect his new interest in immigration? What emerged is a huge fight within the Clinton White House internally. Sort of two camps emerge on the immigration issue, but it's reflective of a broader divide in the White House about race. And so you see people like Christopher Edley, who's going to be in the White House on one side, and he's going to take, there's sort of a more liberal wing in the Clinton White House that's going to push for an expansive notion of citizenship at this moment. And this is a conversation beyond just immigration. It's about affirmative action. It's about several other programs. And then you're going to see a side emerge that's definitely more centrist, right? And this is the triangulation politics of Dick Morris. And particularly, this is seen under Bruce Reed, who at that moment is seen as the leadership of the DLC. He's uh, deputy chief of staff at the White House at the time, but is playing a much more centrist role as head of the DPC. People like him and Elena Kagan are sort of representing much more of the centrist wing in the White House on these questions of race and immigration. And so there's gonna be this internal debate between those who view the future of the Democratic Party and Clinton's presidency sort of more towards this idea of a broad notion of citizenship, and then those who are gonna take a much more centrist approach. And that fight happens, it's happening in the national conversation and it's happening actually internally within the Clinton White House. What I'm hearing is that Clinton, like all Clinton moments, is trying to straddle the middle, and he's getting pushback from the left of his party that wants to increase the opportunities of citizenship for more people. The center of his party is concerned about this politically. Does that mean that most of the opposition to immigration is coming from the right of Clinton? I think what's important to remember is that 60-something percent, I think it's like 63% of Americans at this point, favor some sort of immigration restriction. And so this is, he's getting it within his own party, right? There's definitely elements within the Democratic Party who are pushing for restriction, particularly on this question of access to the broader notion of citizenship. He's getting pushback from within his own party about immigrants' access to social welfare programs as part of a larger push within the Democratic Party about social welfare programs. He's getting pushed not just from restrictionists within the Republican Party, he's getting pushed from within the Democratic Party. The immigration restriction that you think of within the Democratic Party traditionally in the 60s and 70s is generally going to come from labor groups, from the AFL-CIO, and from African-American groups, traditionally like the um, National Urban League, NAACP. That is not as much the story by the 90s. Many of those groups have shifted their position. So that's not the groups in the Democratic Party that are necessarily pushing immigration restriction anymore. Generally, it's coming from more of what you consider the fiscal deficit side of the party. When we look at the immigration debates that we're having today, how much of those conversations are rooted in what is taking place in the 1990s? There's a wide range in the Republican Party on immigration. And I think what you see is in the 1980s under Reagan, sort of those who really support open borders and want continued access to cheap labor. But what happens in the early 90s under Clinton that's new is those who are taking a much more hardline stance become more dominant. Following the contract with America under Newt Gingrich, the the people who are starting to push policy are much more conservative on the immigration issue within the Republican Party. I think today there still remains these divisions in the Republican Party, but what happens in the 90s is similar to what's happening today. The sort of more free market, anti-regulation, continued access to inexpensive labor, that sort of wing that holds a lot of power in the 80s has shifted out of power in the 90s. And that's what we still see today. I think there is a huge conversation about citizenship 
that occurs in the 90s that really frames what we think about today. A lot of people spend a lot of time thinking, oh, where did Trump come from on immigration? But if you look back, a lot of the changes of the 90s in policy, the framework that Trump uses to create his restrictions. So under Clinton, we're going to see huge uh, shifts in something called the likely to become public charge, right? This, this idea that you can use certain benefits to, your use of certain benefits can be weighed in your application for visa status. That's something that's put on, on the books under Clinton. We're going to have huge changes to deportation policy in the 90s that are going to be used by George W. Bush, by Obama, and by Trump. And so I think this sort of conversation that emerges in the 90s really frames where we got today. You started our conversation today by talking about changes in immigration law during Johnson's administration. I do wonder if by Clinton's um, presidency that things that are happening on the state level are having more of an impact on the national conversation so that it's not necessarily Bill Clinton and his administration driving things. It is the policies and the kind of conservative uh, governorships across the country, is that driving the conversation around immigration and race? You bring up a really important point. We think about things like SB 1070 or a lot of the state level laws. What happens is that, you know, they're frustrated, and I mentioned this earlier, they're frustrated at the federal government after IRCA. And there's a reason they turn to Proposition 187 in California. You see in this shift in the 90s to start moving immigration policy to state houses. And it's a kind of very academic, wonky term, but the idea of it's called immigration federalism. And the idea is that the federal government controls immigration policy, and it's been, the Supreme Court upholds this through several decisions in the late 1800s. But what we start to see under Clinton in the 90s is, right, Proposition 187 is the first example of this, but more and more states are going to start driving immigration policy, either by passing their own legislation, like California does. And I will note, Prop 187 gets struck down by the court, but it doesn't matter because much of what Proposition 187 does gets incorporated into federal law in 1996. So, So the states are starting to drive immigration policy in a new way in the 90s either through legislation or, as we see, through electoral politics. It is the pressure of California politics that's going to shift Clinton on this question. I just think that's such an interesting point, the concept of bringing back the federalism into immigration, because in Trump's administration, we actually saw an inversion of that, where several states took advantage of the state-by-state policy to create sanctuary cities and to push back against particularly harsh regulations. And so it's really interesting to see how quickly that has evolved in just 30 years. Yeah, and this all comes, right, this 1990s moment is something known as the devolution revolution. And across policy areas, whether it's immigration or social welfare programs, this is a, and this is a place where it takes place. So Clinton is at the moment, right? And it's through the contract with America and through a lot of this, in this wider moment across policy silos, where we're seeing this sort of devolution revolution to states driving it. And what you see is, the first people who do this well are restrictionists. And so they start pushing immigration restrictions in California, in Texas, in Arizona. The restrictionists do really well pushing sort of restriction at the state level. Immigration rights activists learn from them. And starting in 2008, 2009, 2010, they start pushing more and more state level sort of notions of much broader, expansive citizenship for people without authorization in the United States, access to driver's license access to health care programs at the state level that they may not have access to at the federal level. So I'm, I'm trying to still unpack how much of this conversation on citizenship is a racial issue. We've been talking about immigration. And as you pointed out, obviously, the racial makeup of people coming is different than it was before 1965, to be sure. So is this a period where we're seeing people discuss immigration as a proxy for discussing race as part of why they're discussing immigration is because they're concerned about the racial changes? And how much should we take people at their word when they're not using language that is incendiary? So I think what's different in the 90s is the language. It's similar to something Kevin Cruz talks about a lot with post-civil rights movement language choices and dog whistling. And, and you guys covered this a few weeks ago, right? Most of the restrictionist language no longer says directly racial terms, but uses coded language in the 90s about the fact that these are people who are, you know, coming to the United States to give birth. This is where you see the vitriolic 
offensive term anchor babies comes up at this moment. Or they use the idea that these are people who are a drain on the economic system. They don't have the characteristics of quote unquote working hard. These aren't hardworking Americans. And so I think what you see it is, it is definitely it's about race in the 90s. It just is coming in a language that's coded for mm-hmm. a conversation about citizenship, welfare reform, access to opportunity. We're having this whole conversation that's also going on at the time about affirmative action and access to opportunity and what does that mean? So I do think mm-hmm. it is a race question, but the language is different than it would have been 30 years earlier. So I'm still trying to figure out where Clinton fits in all this, because he's our first African-American president, right? That's what they said. And he's a person who understood African-American culture, or at least was popular within African-American circles as, as someone who was closer to the people, if you will, than, say, a Lyndon Johnson or a Harry Truman, and certainly a John Kennedy. Is this an issue that he ever cares about, this expansion of citizenship, or is this simply just... Clinton being Clinton, and this is an extension of the broader debate over welfare and citizenship. It gets tied up. It's Clinton, this is not an issue that I think he wants to focus on. Most of the notes that I read about, he's like deferring to sort of what, it's not like he's taking the lead on this question, right? He's forced this hand by California, by these state level actions. He's forced by House Republicans who see in 1994, wow, this went really well in California for us. Maybe we should take this to the national level. And so literally Newt Gingrich goes and starts a task force after he sees what happens in 94 to bring what happened in California to the national level. And Clinton stuck with it. His early draft of welfare reform, right, mentioned no aspect of immigrants' benefits, the earliest drafts within the White House. They see House Republicans start pushing restrictions for immigrants' access to social welfare in their versions of the bill. Like early Clinton drafts of welfare reform don't touch immigrants' benefits. And the House Republicans in 1994 happens, and the Clinton White House has to shift right. This is not something that Clinton wants to deal with, but he's forced to deal with it. And at the end of the day, they start to see that this push to reduce immigrants' access to social welfare programs is an opportunity for them, in some ways, if they swallow it, to make what the larger goal that they want on welfare reform. The Clinton administration plans ends up including it, and it provides 40% of the funding for Clinton's welfare reform plans, about $3.7 billion. So was it Clinton's original idea? No. But he realized that it's sort of handed to him. He doesn't have a way of avoiding it. And it sort of comes together with his broader goals on welfare. What do you think our listeners need to know that we haven't talked about? I think what's really important to know is that in 1965, There's this huge immigration act that shifts. And what we start to see over the last 40 years is an attack on the rights of immigrants in the United States. And so what we've seen in the last five years isn't new. And if we want to have a conversation about that, it starts with the attacking of unauthorized immigrants in the 70s under Nixon, and it sort of shifts more and more. And by the 1990s, it's attacking authorized immigrants. And so what you have by the 1990s is a division between citizenship and everything else. And that's sort of what this moment in the 90s is. Suddenly, it doesn't necessarily matter as much how you got into the United States as to whether or not you have citizenship. And that's a harder line than we've ever seen for a country that so much of the rhetoric we hear nowadays is about we're a nation of immigrants. Really? Or or is it in the 90s, does it come to mean we're a nation of citizens and non-citizens? And that distinction between the two becomes very hard in the 90s. And it doesn't become hard necessarily around the border. It becomes hard around these issues about what it means to be in the United States. But a lot of the immigration debate rightfully talks about the southern border or visa and admissions policies. But there's this whole other conversation going on about the rights of those who are already here. And I think that's important for today because you think about today, about 24 million people without citizenship, immigrants to the United States, about 12 million unauthorized. You can have as many conversations as you want that are very important about the border, but there's a whole other side about what it is to live and what it means to have citizenship in the United States and what being part of this society means that's really important. And that conversation becomes cemented in the 90s. We then spoke to Dr. Carly Goodman of LaSalle University and the Washington Post if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and telling us what you work on. I'm Carly Goodman. I'm a historian of immigration and the U.S. and the world. 
And I write about contemporary immigration policy. In particular, I wrote my dissertation about the U.S. diversity visa lottery, a policy that was created as part of the Immigration Act of 1990. More broadly, I've been thinking about the history of immigration restriction and the way that we've seen an uptick in nativism driving immigration policy, in particular since the 1990s, but really going back into the 1980s. So immigration, obviously, has been something that we've been following all the way through. It's perhaps not surprising uh, to you, but it was surprising to me just how much it was inextricably intertwined with questions of race and citizenship. So could you bring us up to speed on what that policy change was in 1990? Obviously, we've talked about 1965. We talked about the changes of the mid-80s. Where are we in 90? You know, 1990, I think, actually belongs to the decade that precedes it. We think about the decade between 1980 and 1990 as being almost one story. And the story is unified by the recommendations that come out of a select commission report on immigration really at the turn of the decade. In 1980, we see the passage of the Refugee Act. In 1986, as you alluded to, is the passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, we use bad acronyms that are unpronounceable in immigration. So IRCA, 1986, that law marries together different provisions. One part of it is a legalization for nearly 3 million unauthorized immigrants, but it weds that legalization program to increased immigration enforcement and more focus on border security and the imposition of something called employer sanctions that is supposed to, in the language of the law, deter unauthorized immigration. In 1990, after having purportedly closed the back door and sort of addressed the political problem of unauthorized immigration through the IRCA legislation, legislators turn in 1990 to the legal immigration system. And that's how they talk about it in the archives. They've closed the back door. Now it's time to talk about who we're admitting through the front door. The 1990 legislation expands the number of people who are going to be uh, admitted legally. They see space for more um, highly paid, highly skilled immigrants to drive the economy of the future. Included in this immigration act that ultimately does expand the number of immigrants admitted through the legal immigration system is this diversity visa lottery, a rather small provision of a, a large and complex system it is designed to admit around 50,000 people who are selected on the basis of their capacity to increase the cultural diversity of the United States. And what was the driving incentive behind that diversity bill or aspect of the bill, that small part of the bill? It's actually a really fascinating story. People, I think, are surprised to hear when they hear the name diversity visa lottery. I think they think of a program that would increase the, the racial and ethnic diversity of the United States. It's an ascendant concept in the 1980s. It's kind of a keyword that people like to use to evoke this idea that the United States is a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. But actually, the source of the diversity visa lottery comes from a very unexpected corner. It's a group of unauthorized Irish immigrants. So after that Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, IRCA created this legalization program. It set guidelines for who would be able to take advantage of this legalization program. And one of the things was that you had to have been in the country since 1982. This was problematic for a group of Irish immigrants who had come on temporary visitors visas or student visas and overstayed them. They found that they had no way to get in line. There was no way to apply for a legal immigrant visa. They didn't have family members who could petition. And this is really the basis since 1965 of the legal immigration system. What we prioritize in this system is U.S. citizens being able to reunite with their family members. If people outside the country don't have U.S. citizen family members, there's very few paths to get a green card and to enter the country as a legal immigrant. And so this group of Irish immigrants found themselves out of status, being treated as unauthorized, being treated as deportable, and living you know, in fear, working under the table, being subject to the exploitation, really being treated in many ways like the rest of the unauthorized immigrant population. And this seemed unfair. They said, there has to be a way. We have to find a way to get visas. So what they wind up doing is going and meeting with their Congress people and arguing there should be a way for independent immigrants to be able to apply to come here, people who want to work hard and live the American dream. 
the kind of, I think, very familiar narrative of the nation of immigrants and how people might even imagine that the immigration system works or should work. What about this independent, hardworking person who dreams of a life in America? Shouldn't they be able to come? Ultimately, they couch this in terms of diversity. Overwhelmingly, most legal immigrants coming in the 1980s are coming from Asian and Latin American countries. And so this idea that you could create space for white immigrants, for European immigrants, and that this would actually bring diversity to the immigrant stream is a real policy innovation. And it helps sell this idea as a valuable one, as something that the United States should value. Different people support that for different reasons. Some people think that this will work as a sort of countering the concentration of Spanish speakers. If immigration remains diverse, then the assimilation model of people becoming American remains potent. If people start coming from one or two places, there are people in Congress at the time who imagine that this could lead to ethnic enclaves and separatism. And then others like this idea of diversity. They think that diversity is a really important core American value, something that should be encouraged, something that makes America special. And so it passes, ultimately expanding beyond just adding Europeans to the immigration stream. The world is carved up to, into these regions, high-sending regions and low-sending regions, with Africa and Europe as the two regions of the world that were otherwise sending the fewest immigrants to the United States. And where my research goes is that this policy really understood at the time as being pork barrel politics and a, a gift to the Irish winds up being far more expansive. People in Africa are able to apply to be immigrants to the United States, and it is inspiring. It inspires a host of entrepreneurial activity around entering the lottery, preparing people's applications. It also reframes how people understand the United States. They see the, this diversity visa lottery, they see this welcome, this opportunity, and it reinforces this idea of the United States as a welcoming nation in people's minds. One of the things that I think surprises me about this amazing history that you're sharing is that this happens on George H.W. Bush's watch, yet so many of the questions and so many of the associations with multiculturalism really come under Bill Clinton's um, era and his administration. And, and I think a lot of the blowback to some of this is coming under Clinton's tenure. So can you talk about Bill Clinton and how he relates to the, these questions? Is he supportive of this legislation? How does he respond? It's interesting. 1990 is the last real revision of the legal immigration system. This diversity visa lottery that I've mentioned is set to begin in fiscal year 1995. And there's a way in which this machine is happening outside of the politics of who's the president, even what's happening in Congress. It's really set into motion. The agencies prepare, the State Department prepares to, to launch this diversity visa lottery. And none of this is on anyone's radar, I have to say, um, especially the DV lottery, because it's small, it's 50,000 people. And this isn't a system that is admitting, on average, a million legal immigrants a year. And it's so far outside of where people's attention is focused. People are focused on the family system and some of the problems that are presenting themselves through that. They're thinking about the labor market. Do we have uh, enough workers to fill the roles that we need to be competitive in our new technologically advanced global world? There's the humanitarian migration system that occupies so much of our politics today, but also through the 90s really becomes quite important, the asylum system and refugee resettlement. And I also want to say the DV lottery, before Donald Trump started tweeting about it in 2017, it's not something that most Americans pay any attention to. I, I hadn't heard of it. I only really stumbled upon the DV lottery when I was traveling in West Africa in 2011, right after my first year of graduate school. My now husband and I had family members in Ghana. So we traveled around and that's where I started to hear about this. People going to the Department of State website uh, at internet cafes that we were stopping in to email home. Like, what is this policy that looms so large here in Togo, here in Ghana, that nobody in the United States is ever talking about? That's the, the sort of the moment that it crystallized for me as something that was very, very interesting. Your question is also a great one because something does change in American politics around immigration after the passage of this 1990 Immigration Act, which is why I count the Immigration Act of 1990 as part of the preceding decade. 
So right after this legislation, George H.W. Bush signs it. Seems like it's going to be a, a great thing, an expansive thing. It increases the numerical limits on legal immigration. The country's mood rapidly shifts against immigrants and against immigration. There's this moment of looming insecurity and immigration becomes polarized. A group of immigration restrictionists seizes this moment. And this changing mood really, I think, helps us understand why we see a lot of negativity about immigration coming from Bill Clinton. And we see support for really punitive policies that seemed fundamentally different from how people had been discussing immigration in 1990. By 1993, 94, you see this surge in xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. Ultimately, this culminates in the passage of federal legislation that is some of the most draconian and harsh anti-immigration legislation that I've seen. It really helps create the foundation and the groundwork for a lot of the ways that the system operated under President Trump. You know, he's building on this foundation left to him by the 1996 laws and by this legacy a bipartisan legacy, sort of treating immigration as a threat and as something to be managed. So two questions follow from that, Ben. What were those signature moments you think that transformed American perception of immigration? And I guess more broadly, why the change? What are the, the key events? I don't think that the recession of 1990 helped very much. The politics around Haitian asylum seekers in the early 1990s becomes a big national story, one that restrictionists are, are eager to capitalize upon. There's two events in 1993 that I think about a lot as really transforming this politics. One is the World Trade Center attack in February of 1993. Some of the people implicated in the bombing were found to be people with pending asylum claims in the United States. They were foreign-born people. This one really focuses a lot of attention on the asylum system, which restrictionists are happy to come in and paint as this giant loophole, this giant security threat and loophole. In June of 1993, the Golden Venture runs aground in Queens. The Golden Venture is a ship carrying, I think, 300 Chinese migrants, many of them asylum seekers, many of them refugees. And it runs aground in Queens, crashing. People drowned and others were taken into custody and held in detention. So there's this process by which Clinton decides that this is politically poisonous for him. And it, rather than releasing people into the community while their asylum claims are pending, he opts to put them into detention centers and jails. I feel that these events are really important in understanding the way that the, the national media story is building a case where immigration becomes a central threat. And then in 1994, there's a very California-specific story that is definitely worth understanding to understand what President Clinton is thinking about in terms of immigration, and that's the fight over Proposition 187. This is a ballot initiative in California that would have banned unauthorized immigrant children from attending public schools. It's designed around arguments about fiscal austerity, the criminality of immigrants, the, this idea that immigrants are taking from the system. Can I ask you to, obviously, on this podcast, we explore a lot of the social, cultural, economic trends that contribute to society's thinking about race, but we do also tie it to the presidency. To what extent was Clinton a major player in this process, or was he just along for the ride? In contrast to some of the other initiatives that we see coming out of the 90s, like the crime bill, Clinton isn't necessarily pushing the 1996 law. He's not leading the charge. But we see in Clinton an executive branch that is determined to demonstrate toughness. We see an executive branch that is pouring money and effort and political will and speeches into saying, we have to put people in detention. We have to put the people on this golden venture into the York Detention Center in Pennsylvania. We see the launch of Operation Gatekeeper in 1994. The story of Operation Gatekeeper is this idea that the border needs to be more secure. And instead of sort of asking, why are people coming? How can we facilitate more orderly migration? 
it's people have to be stopped. And so with Operation Gatekeeper, you see the increased militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly around San Diego, pushing people into increasingly unsafe, dangerous migration routes through the desert. On the other hand, there's this broader sweep, this the way that the whole public is debating this issue in this time, the newspaper headlines, the framing of it. The highly conservative Republican Congress is pushing through really anti-immigrant legislation. There's this trio of 1996 laws that are worth digging into because they each have anti-immigrant provisions in them. There's the Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. And one of the things that this does is make more people eligible for deportation. It makes it easier for INS to detain and deport people. It makes even legal immigrants, longtime residents with green cards, eligible for deportation. It expands the list of what's called aggravated felonies, which makes somebody uh, eligible for deportation. The law is also made it retroactive. So people who had been long-term residents held their green cards and been sentenced for some kind of violation in their past, then all of a sudden become deportable. It expands what's called expedited removal, which is the ability of the system to expel people within 100 miles of the border with really no process. It adds money to the border patrol. It expands something called 287G, which is this mechanism that allows federal immigration and local law enforcement to cooperate to do immigration enforcement. It also made it much more difficult for people to adjust their status to become legal. It exacerbates the very, you know, like if you take the restrictionists at their word about what the problem is, it exacerbates the problem. It expands the population of unauthorized people, which is bad for everyone. So Sarah suggested we ask you about John Tanton Mm -hmm. and what we should know about him. Okay, yeah, I can tell you about Don Tanton. He's playing a huge role in what I'm talking about. But who are the, you know, the the puppet masters behind the scenes manipulating the story that I'm telling you? This is to me so important because history's best lesson is not inevitability. Things didn't have to unfold this way. We are a country that has a long history of immigration. We have just as long a history of xenophobia and nativism, but activating that nativism at, at key moments is necessary to create these onerous and punitive laws. And at work, taking the stories that I've been telling you about these events and making it a story about immigration as a threat are a small group of interconnected organizations working on immigration restriction. At the head of that network of organizations is a man named John Tanton. Tanton was an ophthalmologist in northern Michigan who became really interested in the 1960s in environmental issues and concerns. This interest led him into what was then a pretty widespread and mainstream movement around population control known as zero population growth. That as the population grows bigger, people put more stress on a finite number of resources and that curtailing population growth is the key to saving the environment. As the U.S. population stabilizes in the 1970s and U.S. fertility rates start to stabilize, Tanton notices that the source of population growth is overwhelmingly coming from immigration. He becomes convinced that the only way to address this problem is to restrict and curtail all immigration. When Tanton tries to speak out against immigration and to say we need to cut immigration and force the border and kick unauthorized people out of here in order to save the resources of the United States, he doesn't really find such a warm reception. So he decides to build an organization that will speak out against immigration in favor of immigrant restrictions. And it's a little bit of a challenging thing to do because he finds most people remember immigrant exclusion and restriction as being products of racism and bigotry, right? So he has to find a way to frame this issue that won't be off-putting to people who remember that history. And the way that he does this is there's a few ways. One is to decline to say anything about specific ethnicities and to simply advocate for a reduction in numbers. Numbers are neutral, right? Except for, as we know, as a result of the Immigration Act of 1965, most immigrants are not coming from Europe. Most immigrants are not coming from the places that the 1920s eugenicists thought were desirable, or Donald Trump for that matter. And so by cutting numbers, you would cut non-white immigration to the United States. 
there's a few other things that they do. And so he, he founds the organization FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. They start going to hearings on the Hill. They start meeting with legislators. They meet with members of the Border Patrol Union. And they meet with key people in the media. And they explain to them the problem of immigration. Immigration had been not a really high-level national issue. There are immigration politics always in places like California, New York, Texas. Not so much places like Wyoming, like Connecticut. And Tantan is able to go and establish these relationships. And it's him, his staff, Roger Connor was the first executive director, Dan Stein, before really setting the terms of the debate. So explaining that this problem of unauthorized immigration is a huge problem. I think that the genius of this group and this sort of network of groups is that they represent really very few members of the public, but they really dominate the way that the issue is framed as some people thinking immigration is a good thing, wanting to create mechanisms for legalization, wanting to admit more immigrants, and then the restrictionist side of things. Restriction, I should note, it's an array of policies, excluding people, making it harder for people to migrate, lowering the numerical caps on immigration. Tantin's universe also promotes things like official English policies that send a message of unwelcome in the states where they try to pass official English policies. And then also ramping up enforcement, ramping up detention, deportation, border patrol, and framing the border as the site of insecurity in the minds of Americans. What I see in the, the John Tanton story and why I think it matters to the story is this activation of, I think Daniel Hosang Martinez calls it political whiteness. This isn't really about greater racial diversity in the United States through the 1990s, even though we see increased non-white immigration, but the way that people's whiteness becomes a politically salient category for them. I don't think nativism is a response to the presence of non-white people. I think it has to be activated very specifically because these categories are fluid and they can be constructed differently. Well, those were amazing conversations about the politics of the 1990s and the politics of immigration and the changing face of America. And we can't wait to talk about them. We actually haven't talked for a couple of weeks because we've been having so many amazing guests. We're going to actually discuss a little bit of you know, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush here too. So as we always do, we have written down points that we haven't told each other. So Lindsay, what do you got? What struck me most about this conversation was, of course, the central role of immigration, but also how, for this episode especially, we really couldn't disentangle it from the presidencies and the policies that had come before. In fact, the 1990s is kind of all of those policies coming to fruition and the sort of seeds that had been planted were blooming, so to speak. And so I'm glad that we do have the opportunity to chat because it does seem to me like we cannot talk about Clinton without talking about Reagan or even Nixon. Yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, and in fact, I think going even further back, I, I want to start with Johnson and just the repercussions of the changing rules around uh, immigration and where people could come from. I think that, um, as you're saying, Lindsay, so much of what we're talking about during the Clinton era really has its genesis, you know, years and years before, and we do see it coming to fruition during the 1990s. Well, and the entire political landscape is changing at the same time. You know, the country is moving to the right at the same time that there are, at least on the legal front and on the legislative front, great advances in who could be a citizen. Uh, I mean, we are really far removed from the fights of the 1950s uh, by the 1980s, and yet it almost seems as though what's on the law books is less important than what's honestly in people's hearts. One of the things that surprised me based on, you know, what you had said and what's correct is now when we think about you know, Clinton was a, a centrist, yes, but he was a Democrat. And today, those many of those policies are very unpopular and something that Democrats have to shy away from. And I think that demonstrates your point that the communications and the conversations and the society had really moved to the right for a while. And some of the backlash to that, I know, we'll be discussing in the coming weeks. Well, all of this reminds me and makes me think of the point that I wanted to make, was, which was just about how that 
shift is also happening in the Republican Party. We talked about uh, a little bit ago about how Ronald Reagan was supportive of immigration, and he was someone who kind of thought immigration was a good thing, and his policies kind of reflected that. But by the time we get to the 1990s, his party, uh, led by Newt Gingrich and kind of the right-wing media uh, in the form of people like Rush Limbaugh, that really begins to shift, and immigration has no longer the same resonance with uh, kind of Reagan's Republican Party. Well, and, and I got to tell you, um, truth in advertising, this is the 1992 election was the first one I voted in. So I remember it pretty clearly. And one of the things that I remember, at least think I remember in retrospect, is how much Clinton, as a new generation, as the first baby boomer, as the first cold, post-Cold War president, as a president, frankly, who had come from nothing and from a backwood state, was a president who was going to focus on metrics and a president who was going to focus on the numbers and a president who was going to focus on the budget. And you know, essentially almost like the progressives of the early 20th century, we were going to focus on, you know, fixing what was wrong with the country without all these biases. And man, did that fail. Uh, it is amazing how, you know, the almost maybe perhaps the the fact that the new Democrats tried a centrist approach and tried to bring in again numbers, metrics, you know, try to bring in science and try to say, it doesn't matter what you look like and who, who you, where you came from, you know, what are your SAT scores? Those are the things that seem to drive a lot of the opposition to Clinton in the 1990s and then subsequently. Uh, it's almost like the change to the baby boomers brought out the worst in America. Well, and I, both of our guests talked about how this moment is kind of when there's this indictment and this pushback against the idea of multiculturalism. You know, that there's this um, moment when, you know, in some ways we should be looking at all the benefits and the value that comes from the, the diversity of America. And yet the language around that really um, becomes contentious. And actually, I remember that very clearly. You know, I, I remember that the idea of being politically correct when I was in graduate school in the 1990s um, was a positive. You know, now, of course, it has a negative tinge to it that you've got some kind of, you know, that you're too uptight or you're too worried about offending to say anything real. In the 1990s, I distinctly recall the discussion was about how to use language that would make everybody comfortable about talking about things. That it was a way of opening up conversation, not about closing it down. Times have changed. Well, and in uh, truth and advertising, one of my first real political memories was his impeachment. Hmm. And what did you think at the time? <laughs> I was very young. I have no recollection really of it. <laughs> Although I remember, I mean, this is, you know, I think a very accurate representation of some of the dialogue is the conversations I were hearing were not about the activities, but rather lying under oath, which is one of the talking points that, you know, were going around in, uh, in, in discourse at the time. I bet that, uh, Lindsay, at the time, you didn't anticipate that uh, Jeffrey Engel would be editing a book on impeachment and dealing with uh, the Clinton impeachment in historical context. Probably not. <laughs> oh, my God. That was the last thing on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was working on Cold War aviation technology controls at the time, so a little bit far removed from the politics of, of impeachment. But interestingly enough, I mean, that's the thing I find most fascinating about our current era of impeachment, if you will, and maybe our current political era more broadly, that Clinton was impeached for lying under oath about a private relationship, however inappropriate. That was the charge, that he lied under oath. And you compare that charge to subsequent impeachment charges, and we've seen an incredible rise in the tension in in Washington and, and the the fact that we are fully factionalized at this point. Which, of course, has racial overtones throughout, given the makeup of the parties. And only accelerated or started to accelerate in the next conversation we'll be having about George W. Bush. Well, and that's a presidency, of course, that, you know, race is both everywhere and nowhere uh, in the sense that it never goes away. It's an important part of the conversation. And the nation turned so dramatically on September 11th to a new agenda. And the racial politics never went away, obviously. But that's for next time, I guess. Looking forward to it. Me too.
as he freezes. We missed the last part of your question, Jeff. I am so <laughs> sick of this. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of question is that? That's it for today's episode on President Bill Clinton. Thanks so much to Sarah Coleman and Carly Goodman for opening up the 1990s. The Past, The Promise, and The Presidency is a production of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Our thanks to the Office of the Provost and the Dedman College of Arts and Sciences for their support. And special thanks to Mandy Regan, Katie O'Connell, and Brian Franklin for producing this episode, whose original theme music was composed by Marshall Engel. For show notes, more information on our expert guests, recommended readings, and more, visit pastpromisepresidency.com. Next up, George W. Bush, a man whose presidency was most certainly not what he expected.